Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles and open them to Zephaniah? Our text will be chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and we'll be closing out, Lord willing, this short prophet this morning. And what we see is after two and almost a half chapters of warning of of judgment and destruction that God would be bringing, the book closes with a message of comfort to the hurting. And in many ways, we are reminded here of what awaits us in comfort that is coming in its fullness when the Lord returns. But at the same time, we are also reminded that that very comfort that will be realized in its fullness when Christ returns is a comfort that is very real and present right now for those that are in Christ. In fact, as we will look through the text, we will see these wonderful promises of God's presence with His people and what that will be like to be in His presence for eternity. But then we're reminded at the same time that all of those promises are available to us right now. And so we see a wonderful message given that comes after a message of warning that there is impending destruction, judgment, and doom coming. In fact, we see and have seen throughout this wonderful book here is that God's warning of His impending judgment is an act of His mercy. So let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. 
whenever store your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, this is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. And when you read a text like this, you just want to stay in it for the rest of the day because of how wonderful it is and how wonderful our God is and how merciful he is to his people, that he would provide his presence with people that he has identified and we know in our heart are rebellious against him. But what I want you to notice in the first several verses, 9 through 13, is we see this picture of God at the end day, at that day, gathering in the nations. And then we see from verses 14 through 20, as he is gathered in the nations, that the king himself takes up residence with the nations. And as we look at this, we have to recognize throughout all of this, this is a sovereign work of God according to his timetable that is determined by him and by him alone. And as we see this timetable that's coming and what it is that God will do, God receives the credit and praise for his mercy in that he calls a people to himself that will call on his name. In fact, that's what we see in verses 9 through 10 is a work of God's sovereign work of regeneration. Notice what it says. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech with this result, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And so God Himself will do a sovereign action for this purpose, or with this result, that people will call upon His name. And that is a picture of regeneration. Regeneration, we often call it new birth, to be born again. That is something God does. That is a sovereign act of God. Uh, we would just simply ask this question that has often been asked, what did you have to do with your birth? Nothing. You were the passive agent in it. And it goes same goes with your new birth. In regeneration, it is an action of God, but it comes with a result, and that is that we call upon the name of the Lord. And that is what we see here. But it's phrased in this way, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Well, what is he referring to here when we see that? Well, this should draw your attention to the Tower of Babel. What took place at Babel? Well, we see this in Genesis chapter 11, verse 8 through 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So if you will remember in your Old Testament history, uh, God destroys the earth by flood, except for he saves those eight in the ark, Noah and his family. And after Noah and his family come out of the ark, there's a rebuilding of the world. And at some point, all the people come together with one voice and try to distance themselves away from God and build this tower. And they say, there's, there's nothing that we can't achieve and accomplish. They had become self-sufficient and dependent, and God comes and tears 
down the tower and they stop building. He disperses all the people. There's a confusion of languages. And what does it say that God will do here in Zephaniah? Is he is going to restore that, what was destroyed there in the Tower of Babel. Now, you see this so clearly that this is what God is going to do in bringing all nations back together because he goes on to say in verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush. And that would be uh, Ethiopia, Egypt, that region. It's hard to exactly identify who the Cushites were, but it was in that region. What did we see of Cush already in chapter 2? In verse 12, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Those that God had said were set apart for judgment, we read here that he's actually going to be calling a people from those that were destined to be slain by the sword. This is a gathering in of the nations when we see this, that he will change the speech of the peoples as he is gathering in the nations. And this is actually a promise of the new covenant. We see this over and over in the different prophets, but most clearly in Jeremiah, in chapter 3 and verse 17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow after their own heart. Why is that? Is because God himself will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That is a sovereign work of God. That reversal of of Babel. But there's something we have to understand about this. When we look at that as a future promise, we recognize rightly that is a future promise. But we have to ask is, when did that promise begin to take effect? Is it something purely future, or is it something that has already been initiated and we're waiting for its consummation. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 2, what do we see happening? It says in verse 6 of chapter 2, and this, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were, being, were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then you see a table of the nations listed that are hearing the gospel message in their own language. And the disciples did not learn these languages. When Peter got up to preach, he hadn't been studying uh, the language of the Medes, the Parthians, the Elamites, or the Mesopotamians, or Judea, or Cappadocia, or Pontus, or Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, or Cyrene. Peter hadn't taken a language course in any of those, but the Lord enabled his tongue to speak known languages that the people would hear the gospel message. And so what we see taking place in the future 
has already begun in the now. And so, in other words, what's taking place, what we're promised here in Zephaniah is that God will do this, took place at Pentecost, it's continuing right now, and it will continue and be perfected at the return of the Lord. What a wonderful promise, but it's not just one of the future, but one we're actively involved in right now. You know what I love about the 1689 Confession of Faith is what it says about the importance of Bible translation. There are thousands of unreached people groups that do not have the Word of God in their own language. In the 1689 London Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession, it says this, the best way to reach the peoples is to translate the Bible into their tongue. And we take part in what took place at Pentecost, and we continue that, not that God is now giving us the ability to speak known languages, but He has certainly given us the ability and the resources to translate His Word into unknown languages to reach the people, to reach the nations, that they may come and know Christ. Now, look at look what the result of this is. And that they serve Him, that is, they worship Him with one accord. And it's literally that they worship Him, they serve Him shoulder to shoulder. And that is the radical transformation that takes place at the Gospel, is that it brings unlike people together that they may worship the Lord. What a picture we see here not only of what we see in the church right now, but the perfect picture that will be realized in the new heavens and earth. As Revelation 21 verse 4 says, the nations walk. Revelation 22 verse 2 says, the healing of the nations will take place. And so what you see here in Zephaniah is this promise that unlike people will come together and they will worship the Lord shoulder to shoulder. There's something about this is that that speech that is changed to a pure speech brings people together to have a common profession and unity is based upon a common profession of faith. Outside of a common profession of faith, we don't have unity. But we are united around a common profession. In fact, this is what we're even told in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, or every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in your hand. Now notice how you see, it's a multitude. From, from every nation, from all tribes, all different tongues, what is it that brings them together is a common profession. Verse 10, they're crying out, that is shoulder to shoulder, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're united together with one common profession. It's so important that we get this right of the unity that takes place 
because of God's sovereign actions. What do we see in Romans chapter 11 where it shows us the picture of the olive tree and the Gentiles grafted into it. But the beauty of the Gentiles being grafted into that olive tree is that there isn't two olive trees. There's one. There's one. What does Jesus say? He identifies that there will be one flock, not two flocks. And as Paul ponders this, as Paul was a a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he called himself. What does he say of this mystery? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This idea that Cushites would join those of Jerusalem and that they would become one, no longer would they be separated but they would be all one before God. Paul says that's the mystery of the church. That's what the church is. The church is people of unlike backgrounds, and people of different tastes, different socioeconomic status, different ethnicities, that are all united in Christ. One olive tree, one flock, one people of God, all by God's sovereign work of changing the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, a speech that calls upon the name of the Lord. And so what we see here is a sovereign work of God, something He does that results in our profession. So so how does this work? God brings about new birth and profession results. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him at night, possibly to be avoided, and Jesus shines the light into the darkness of Nicodemus' heart and says, you must be born again. Literally, born again is born from above. There must be a new birth. By the way, that is the answer to the, to the very thing that we see being propagated today in our ears is that I can't help it. I was born this way. You're right. That's why you must be born again. Because you were born this way. We all must be born again. We're all born in sin. But God brings about new birth. And profession results as a, as, as a result of what God has done. And if that was the other way around, then we would be credited with our own salvation rather than God. In essence... If it was a matter of something I did, based upon my profession, rather than a sovereign work of God, then I would be saved by my own works. We see this gathering of the nations, and we see this picture of, of that gathering, of what they will look like. 
And it is that they are the humble and the wicked will be removed from them. The meek will inherit the earth. And it begins in verses 11 through 13 with this picture of a judicial hearing that is going to take place. And I want you to notice in this judicial hearing, the first thing that we see is that of forgiveness. In verse 11, at the first part of verse 11, on that day, and it's picturing that day, that day of the Lord that Zephaniah has been telling us of this whole time, you shall not be put to shame. You'll be forgiven. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. In other words, those deeds and that rebellion should result in us being put to shame, but because God is merciful, we will not be put to shame. So this is an amazing verse because it tells us there is forgiveness granted even for the rebellious. Who are the rebellious? All that are born of Adam. That's the rebellious. And this verse here stresses the fact that we are all rebellious. And if we are all rebellious, what does that tell us about our own merit to save ourselves? It tells us this very poignantly. Our goodness does not save us because we are, in fact, rebellious. It is the Lord in His mercy that takes away our sin and takes away that which we deserve. What we deserve is to be put to shame. If you look at verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The Lord has done this act of forgiveness despite your rebellion. This is the best news we can hear. This is the most wonderful news And that's why it's called the good news is because the truth is is that we are all rebellious against God at some point. And all that are apart from Christ are always against God. They're never seeking His glory. And so what will happen is that the Lord will bring forgiveness, but as He brings forgiveness and He doesn't give us what we deserve, which is to be put to shame. He then has a removal. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. And so so there's a removal of the prideful. And pride will no longer characterize the earth. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be removed. They don't get to take part in it. Now, notice what it says. It's the proudly exultant ones. I appreciated what we heard in this morning in Sunday school is that pride is so often one of those sins that we make excuses for. But what does it tell us here in the text? It's actually that sin of pride 
that's pinpointed as the sin that's going to remove us. But you, you look at Paul's final letter in 2 Timothy, and he identifies what will be the signs of the last days. And we know when the last days began was with the ascension of Christ. What will be a sign of the last days? Well, Paul tells us it's actually pridefulness. And so Zephaniah says, that will be removed. That will be removed. Now, what is the specific context here of this idea of pride and the prideful ones? Let me summarize this because Zephaniah's context has been in pinpointing the religious abuse that took place in Jerusalem. Pride manifested itself in this way, that they trusted in their own ability to merit salvation before God. Now we see this picture of the nations coming. That is going to be, God is going to be calling out of the nations people for himself. And many of those people will not have had the word of God and seen the revelation of God. So you might wonder, how is it that they could be blamed and be held accountable for the fact that they were self-sufficient because they suppressed the truth that was written upon their heart and that they could visibly see with their eyes. And they sought their own resources to save themselves. When we look at what does it mean to be prideful? And why is it so strongly condemned in Scripture? Because it manifests itself in this way. I don't need God. And to say, I don't need God, in many ways, is to say, well, God needs me. I don't need His salvation. I don't need His forgiveness. I'm good enough on my own. That is the manifestation of pride that God will remove from this earth. But he says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So the humble will remain. And what is it that they will do? Is they will rest in God. They will rest in Him. Because the removal of pride is to say, I can't do this on my own, but I need you, Lord. And so they seek in him refuge. And we give this beautiful picture is that he gives it. Those that seek refuge in the Lord are looking for security. They are looking for safety. They are looking for peace. They are looking for comfort. And guess what it says at the end of verse 13? For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What is that picture? But that of the sheep in grazing in the pasture with the shepherd watching over them that they are saved. We see this wonderful picture of this in Ezekiel. In chapter 34, in verses 28 through 31, we read this. They shall no more be a prey to the nations. 
Nor shall the beast of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. What a wonderful picture. Now, Israel was promised security if, in the Old Covenant, that they would obey God's law. But they they discarded God's law. And the nations came in and attacked them. And so they were under constant threat. But what he gives is a picture of, that's all going to be gone. Why? Because I've changed your heart fully. And now you are in complete safety. You can imagine that. There's tension in the world right now. We, we, we wonder, are we going to go into World War III? It's got to be on people's minds. We're coming into a day, though, where that will never be a concern of ours. We're coming to a day where we will not worry of whether we leave our doors unlocked or not. We're coming into a day where we will have complete security because the people's speech will have been changed to a pure speech is that they have been given this new heart that is fully realized in the new heaven and no earth. And why is it? Well, notice why. Look at the characteristics at the beginning of verse 13. They shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. In other words, there's coming a day, the characteristics of the age to come is that there is no injustice, no lies, no deceit. Now, if these are all aspects of the flesh, and they are all aspects of the flesh that every one of us struggles with, the indication is then here that what we see pictured here is something coming where God has completely changed our disposition. But it's also this. It's the culmination of what begins here and now for those that are in Christ. Let me say that again. What we get in new birth is a new disposition. We're given a new mind. We're given the mind of Christ, a new heart. But we still have this flesh. There's coming a day that what begins now in Christ will be fully realized. And that is the picture we have here. This is a promise of that new covenant that not only will reach a culmination in the new heavens and the new earth, but is a present reality now. In fact, we see this again to go to Jeremiah in chapter 32, in verse 20. We read these words and after the promise of the new covenant Where we see in verse, sorry, verse 34 of chapter 31. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Is that what is written on our hearts will be written on our hearts in such a way that what comes with that is a disposition to serve God. And in chapter, verse 40 of chapter 32, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me into their hearts that they may not turn from me. That is a promise of the new covenant that is realized in Christ that will reach its culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. But we also have to recognize that that is our current disposition. If you are in Christ, that is your current disposition. And this is why Paul, but we struggle with the flesh, and this is why Paul continually says, put on the new self. But I want you to notice something about this. There's a big stress on obedience here. Because it says that there will be no injustice, no lies, nor deceit in their mouth. There's something that precedes all of that. And that is grace. Never get those two backwards. Grace always precedes obedience. When we call people We call them to Christ. Christ changes someone. And by union with Christ, and by our union with Christ, there is a change in the person that results in obedience. But we never do this. You must be obedient to come to Christ. No, we call people to Christ. And then in Christ... That law that's written on their heart that testifies against them is now a law that is desirable to their hearts. And there's something else that I want us to notice in these verses that's so instructive and crucial for how we understand end times because I think a lot of, get, a lot of people get this wrong. I think they actually get it opposite. The removal here is not of the humble. The removal is of the wicked. The inheritance is for the humble. Isn't this why Jesus gives us the picture of Noah? Was Noah removed from the earth during the flood? No. Noah stayed and inherited the earth. The wicked were removed through the destruction of the flood. This will be purified and be given as an inheritance and already is. This is why Luther, when asked, if you knew tomorrow was the last day on earth, what would you do? Luther said, I would plant a tree. So dear friends, live a life that goes and plants a tree. Because God is going to remake this earth. And he's going to remove the wicked from it. And it will be the inheritance of the humble. And what will this look like? And what do we see in part right now? 
as we see the presence of the king. You'll notice in verse 14, because of the presence of the king, we are called to worship him. And that's what this verse, these verses start with, is a call to worship. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with, with all your heart. That is all of who you are, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so what we have to see here is Jerusalem is now identified. Jerusalem is the city that has been identified throughout this whole entire thing. In verses 1 through 8, it says that judgment is coming to Jerusalem, and now we see Jerusalem is granted forgiveness. And what does Jerusalem look like? Jerusalem is the picture of the nations gathered together, shoulder to shoulder, serving God. And so we have a call to worship. We see a call to worship. And while we, we recognize that as we've looked at this book, that some of the warnings and the destruction that is promised can be uncomfortable, the thing that we see and we should recognize about these warnings is it's actually a time of great hope for those that are receiving the message that stand in Christ. And that actually the message itself is a call to respond in worship to God. And so this whole time we've been told this destruction's coming, this destruction's coming. And then in verse 14, we see, now worship God. That warning is to draw us to a day that we are to anticipate, we are to pray for, and that we are to live as if it's coming, and it's to drive us to worship together. And the reason is given, and the first thing we see once again is the mark of this is forgiveness. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, this is, this is forgiveness from the king. And I just want you to notice the verb. The Lord has taken away past tense. All of Zephaniah is set forward looking into the future, but here we see something that has already taken place. Forgiveness. And here's why. Because if you stand in Christ, you already are forgiven. If you are in Christ, your sins have been removed. You have Christ. I think that that's a reason to gather together, to sing aloud, to rejoice and exult with all of who we are, isn't it? As the song says, is that our sins are great, but His mercy is more. It says that they have been taken away, and that is that they have been buried. That's the picture. And so we stand in this new relationship with God. And then we see once again the idea of safety and peace following forgiveness. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is an amazing promise because the very God that says, I'm bringing destruction, I'm bringing judgment, the very God that we will cower in His presence because of His holiness, He says now... You can stand in my presence. Why? Because we've been forgiven. 
That's the beautiful picture, is that he will dwell with us because of that forgiveness that he himself has been given. And now we see that we are forgiven now in Christ, and, but, but the picture here we have to recognize, again, is fully realized in that new heavens and new earth. You shall never again fear evil, but if you are in Christ, you shall never again fear evil. You shall never again fear evil. He has taken away your sins. And he goes on to say, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Now, when was this day or when is this day? If you would, just for a moment, turn over to John chapter 12 with me. If you look over in John chapter 12 and verse 13, this is the triumphal entry. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you've ever heard that passage preached on, maybe you remember this, or maybe this will bring back your memory, this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we recognize rightly that that comes from Zechariah. But I want you to notice what John writes. He writes, fear not. Those are not words found in Zechariah. Where are those words found? In the promise of this coming Messiah in the coming of the Lord, in which there will be a day of security, safety, and peace, actually, we see that this is promised in Zephaniah. Fear not, O Zion, the very words that John records, the people saying as Jesus comes in. What does that mean? It means that this is actually a present reality right now for those that are in Jesus Christ. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. This is as if Christ is telling us right now, fear not, church, and let not your hands grow weak. Why? Because Christ our King came. And he accomplished redemption. And he is still our king. This has already been inaugurated, and we're just awaiting the day where it's fully consummated. Is that when the king will come and dwell with his people fully. I want you to not ever forget this, is that the presence of the king is right now. The presence of the king is now as he dwells with his people by his spirit. Isn't that what we see? 
In the New Testament, we are told this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We look at the new heavens and the new earth, and we realize Christ will return, and that He will be with us physically. But what we sometimes forget is Jesus says, I'm going away, and I have to go away, and it's for your better, because I'm going to send my Spirit to you to be with you. That is meaning this, is that the Spirit of God is with His people right now. That is a reality for us. That Christ dwells with us. And look at, we're promised this idea of peace. Never again will you share, shall you fear evil. And we recognize, okay, there's coming a day where that's going to be really true for us. But it's true right now. Look what Jesus says. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, you have, if you are in Christ right now, there is peace. Yes, the world around us seems like it's going chaotic. But it's not. Jesus has conquered it. He says it. I have overcome it. The presence of the King, by His Spirit, is with His people. And that peace that He promises is not only future, but it is now. That's a wonderful reality, isn't it? Look at the comfort from the king in verse 17. Many people call this the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, and it is one of my most favorite verses, and one that I have used in countless situations to bring, see God's word bring comfort to people in turmoil. Let me just read the whole verse, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I like to ask this whenever I'm with someone, whether it be a hospital bed or or a counseling session, is which one of those things brings comfort to your heart right now? And I would ask you that. Because it's meant to bring comfort to us. Is presence, the presence of God does not invoke fear, but actually floods our heart with comfort. And what we see is this, is that God delights in His own. And the first thing that we see is that of salvation. He is a mighty one. He is an all-powerful one. He will save He will save us from oppressors. He will save us from sins. He will save us from judgment. And He will delight in His own because He will rejoice over you with gladness. How is it that a holy God can delight in people that were rebellious? We say that He took away their sins because our sins were nailed to the cross, but we have inherited something, and that is the righteousness of Christ. And so that when he sees his own, he sees his son. He says he will quiet us with his love. That is a love that brings comfort, calmness to the soul. And what comfort is that in this life is that I am not my own, but I am his. 
And that his love that is steadfast, that is everlasting, that cannot be ever taken away, remains. It says he will sing, exult over you with loud singing. Now, we have to recognize something true of God. This is a picture of the delight that God takes in his own because God is not moved by us that results in him being moved to singing. God's not inspired by us. If he was, then we would have to question whether his love was eternal upon us. This is language that is describing something to us that is so incomprehensible of the delight that God takes. And why does he take that delight? Because if you are in his son, he takes great delight in his son. And then we see this picture of an ingathering in verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. There is coming a day where there will be no more tears, but that we will be comforting. And we will have justice from this king. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time I I will deal with all your oppressors. That tribulation you faced in the world from people that hated the light and loved the darkness, I'm going to take care of that, the king says. I'm going to take care of that. He says this, I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth, all those that society had kicked aside, the king himself will welcome them and show his love upon them. And we see this inheritance in verse 20. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune Before your eyes, says the Lord. That is, that we will reign with Christ forever and ever and inherit a garden of Eden new. What promises we have from the Lord, isn't it? Promises that are too glorious to comprehend, but yet are present realities for those in Christ. We see in part now that which is dimly lit And we see in part now that beautiful unity of the church and the presence of Christ by His Spirit, the practice of true justice, peace, and even joy. And what Zephaniah teaches us, and I hope we have seen this over these last several weeks looking at this book, is this, is that what seems to be is not what truly is. What do I mean by that? Well, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That is Christ. All things have been subjected under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That is speaking of the sovereign reign of Christ. But at present, we do not seem, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What it reminds us is is this, is that despite the way things sometimes seem, Christ truly is in charge. And what do we know of the wickedness that exists in the world today? And none of us would question the fact that there is wickedness that exists in this world. Here's what we must be recognized. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus tells us also in John, in chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, that he has already overcome and conquered the world. That the evil one has already been conquered. And so this is our current reality is that Christ has already conquered. We are just waiting for His full consummation of all things. And throughout the book, we see that the Lord has a day when He will bring that back. He is sovereignly chosen to bring about these things. That is the reality. That is what is. And we are moving towards that now, and nothing can stop that coming day of the Lord. And we can have great comfort in that day where the Lord will delight in His people and remove wickedness from the earth. And so I ask this, what must characterize our time here as we wait? Well, as we look at Zephaniah, one of the attributes of this what will be is unity. It was a unity of profession. It was a unity of worship. Notice what he tells us, that they will be all of one accord. And the yous throughout all of this are singular, speaking of Jerusalem, which is speaking of the collective whole. What does Christ promise us? What has Christ bought with his blood? A unified people. What did he pray for? That they may be one, even as you and I are one. What must characterize our time as we await the return of the King? It must be this. It must be unity. And friends, we need that right now, more than ever. But Zephaniah also reminds us of this. He reminds us that all of us are guilty before God. Our works our perceived goodness that only renders us guilty. We are not good enough and cannot be good enough. It takes a sovereign work of God in the heart of the rebellious. And you will notice throughout this, this is all a sovereign work. This, there's these statements, I will or he will. The I will statements, there's nine of them. Nine sovereign statements of what God will do. If God does this, then if it is a sovereign work of God, that always comes with the question that it is, is salvation is a work of the Lord in Him alone, and that we will be judged based upon our, our works or the work of Christ, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I want you to notice verse 12. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. What are we to do? We are to seek refuge in the Lord because in Him and Him alone do we find covering. And that covering is the blood of Christ. And apart from that blood of Christ, we stand before and will stand before a God that will pour out His wrath and indignation on those that rejected Him. And yes, it is a sovereign work of God, but right now the Lord calls all of us to seek refuge in Him where we will find forgiveness 
and that we will not be put to shame. And so, let us give Zephaniah the last word, and it is this. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Let us seek refuge in the name of the Lord, and there we find the delight of the sovereign king upon us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the comfort that it brings to those that are in your Son. We thank you that our salvation is not based upon what we do because when we look in the mirror, we know that we all fall short. We thank you that you call us to seek refuge in you and you make a way by which we can find refuge in you. And that is by your Son. I pray that, Father, as we've looked at this book of Zephaniah, that it has filled our hearts with comfort and peace, knowing that while these wonderful promises will be realized fully in your new heavens and new earth, that they are also present realities that encourage us and give us hope now. And so, Father, may we be encouraged by your word. May we be comforted by your word. May we have peace by your word of knowing your promises are true because they are yours. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.